0: So, um, CCL is a think tank, so um, I'm going to ask you guys to think. You may need to get more coffee, get some more coffee over there, so that you're able to keep, keep alert, but it does go kind of quickly, so uh, let's um, get started. I'm talking today about a culture and about how we need to be simultaneously pessimistic and realistic and optimistic. You say, how can that be simultaneously? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about culture, but I need to quickly define what culture is. It's one of those terms whose meaning we often assume, but we don't define. Uh, I guess the best way of understanding culture is to contrast it with nature or creation. We read in the Bible that God made the universe in six days, and everything that he created was, do you remember the language? Very good. His crowning creation, of course, was man, male and female, created in his image. That's nature all that God has created in our universe. God gave man, then, a uh, man, meaning man and woman, a commission to steward the rest of his creation. Man is charged with being God's uh, vice-regent, we might want to say, his uh, representative, his deputy. Man's chief task is to exert dominion in God's good earth. God calls man to interact with the creation and use his own God-given ingenuity to bring glory to God with all of this that we see around us. We can say then that nature is what God makes and culture is what man makes. That's John Frame's definition, short one, and it's a pretty good one. We even see it in the English word culture. You ever think about that in English? Cult, culture. Man is called to cultivate creation. Now it's easy to detect the difference between these two, nature and culture. A banana is nature. Banana cream pie is culture. A human ear and mouth are nature. An iPhone 6 is culture. Silver is nature. A silver dollar is culture. The opium poppy is nature. Heroin is culture. Now, you note that culture isn't always good. That's an important point to understand. Culture is what you get when you combine creative human interaction with nature. So we might say in short of a little equation, nature plus conscious human interaction equals culture. When we say, therefore, for example, that we have reason to be pessimistic about our present culture, and that's one thing I'm saying today, we're really saying that man's doing a poor job of stewarding creation. That's what we're really saying. So, let's talk about pessimism first and quickly. I could go in any one of a number of directions because there's plenty to be pessimistic about. But I'd like to stick with the nature-culture theme and mention one thing. Now, you might recall that the reason that God confounded human language at the Tower of Babel is that humanity was trying to make a great name for itself by breaking loose from this created condition, from God-created nature. Now, it's interesting if you've read that in Genesis 11, how that as the Trinity communed among themselves, they acknowledged they had to destroy this tower, this human project, because they said nothing would be impossible to man. I'd like you to think about that for a minute. God was saying that man might indeed be able to break free from some of the constraints of creation. But if he did so, that freedom would be utterly self-destructive. Now let's fast forward about a thousand years. A few thousand thousand years. Gradually Western societies become uh, radically egalitarian. That is, given to equality and leveling in virtually all things. Everyone has to be equal, or at least everyone's entitled to the same things. Society has to erase creational differences that God has established. Now, here's a prime example some of you may have read about from Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln, Nebraska, I say. I'm quoting this from a news story. Uh, A Nebraska school district has instructed its teachers to stop referring to students by, quote, gendered, expressions, close quote, such as boys and girls, and use gender-inclusive ones such as purple penguins instead. Quote, don't use phrases such as boys and girls, you guys, ladies and gentlemen, and similarly gendered expressions to get kids' attention, instructs a training document given to middle school teachers at the Lincoln Public Schools. Not Boston, not San Francisco, not Midtown Manhattan, But good old mid-America, Lincoln, Nebraska. Quote, create classroom names and then ask all of the purple penguins to meet on the rug, for example. It advises. Now, if that sounds like madness, that's because it is. Moreover, this egalitarianism runs into a brick wall in created human sexuality, which is a huge issue today. Man, the male, contains the seed, and the woman, female, contains the womb. God created man to desire woman and woman to desire man. This arrangement is not a recipe for egalitarianism. Just it's opposite, actually. They're different, not equal. One's not superior to the other, but not equal either. They're different. Now, this inequality imposes limitations on human dreams, specifically leftist dreams of the great egalitarian society. These dreams fuel a strategy to break free of God's gracious restraints. As an example, depraved man creates ARTs. Those of you here involved in medicine know about that. Assisted reproductive technologies. For example, two males wish to get married, contrary to God's design, and a new political arrangement, same-sex marriage, permits them to get married. But it's not enough to get married. Married people generally have children. So this homosexual couple must have children if they're to be truly equal, truly equal to married heterosexuals. They can't, of course, produce their own biological children because that's a creational impossibility. They need a womb to do that. Therefore, they rent the womb. They rent the womb of a woman, and ARTs allow them to contribute their sperm to this woman's or another woman's eggs to produce a biological child. One member of a lesbian couple, of course, can get the same result after acquiring sperm. ARTs are a bonanza to couples, or for that matter, triples or quadruples, I don't think that's not coming, that want to bypass nature in order to be sexually equal with the rest of the population. Now, let me remind you that in Genesis 11, God did not declare that man is unable to overcome nature. He didn't quite say that. God thwarted man's sinful design precisely because in many cases, man is able to some degree to overcome nature. But God is troubled that man's overcoming nature is self-destructive, and that man will destroy himself. Now there's no reason to believe that man's dazzling intellectual and technological capacity won't permit, at some points the suppression of nature. In other words, it wouldn't be surprising if within several generations, almost anyone anywhere could get a biological baby almost any time he or she or it wanted. The issue isn't technological capacity, but rather moral consequences. We live in a God-rigged universe. Does everyone understand that? We live in a God-rigged universe. God permits man wide latitude to take dominion, including ungodly dominion. Yes, God permits that. In his long-suffering, God permits that ungodly dominion. Sometimes he allows it for many generations. But then, of course, as in Genesis 15 and other times, his judgment falls. So it's never a case, really, of uh, dominion versus no dominion. It's always a case of godly dominion in the earth versus ungodly dominion. Man is always taking dominion in a godly way or an ungodly way. There is reason for pessimism at the unrestrained, sinful imagination of ungodly individuals exercising dominion in the earth. I'm telling you that it's possible as we move forward into the future that in the short term, at least, they may be quite successful in doing that. But, point number two, we have a reason also to be realistic. Now, this is where a basic grasp of history is uh, really beneficial. ARTs that I've talked about may be historically unprecedented, but sinful culture is not. Christianity, of course, emerged during the slow, painful collapse of the Roman Empire, right? About 2,000 years ago. Religious persecution was on the rise. Economic inflation was rampant. Homosexuality and other sexual immorality were pervasive. Politicians were corrupt. The family was under assault. Sound familiar? Of course, that was about 2,000 years ago. And Christian culture rose out of the ashes of a decadent Roman Empire. On the eve of the Protestant Reformation, Europe was in religious darkness. But God raised up reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Knox the religious situation in Europe, hear this well, in 1570 was significantly better than it was in 1510. Things can get better, and they have gotten better historically. Some of you here are, uh, are older. We're thinking of Dick Taylor and people like that, quite old. I remember my own fear in 1975, that, uh, and I was quite young then, that communism would soon suffocate the globe. Um, It was on the move, as those of you living at the time remember, in Southeast Asia and in South and Central America and on the African continent. But my fear wasn't justified. Fifteen years later, communism had fallen in the Soviet Union. It had fallen in all of Eastern Europe in Africa and Southeast Asia and Central and South America. China had been forced to capitulate to a mixed economy. Marxism was just gone almost everywhere except for Cuba and on the campuses of elite American universities. Now the same is true in American politics, even in our lifetime. And I'm sure Brian and, or David might touch on this. You know the political pundits really never ceased to uh, amaze me and amuse me. In 1992, some of you remember after Bill Clinton was elected, the Republicans were wringing their hands. And the pundits were talking about I just this language. I'm so tired of it. I think I'm going to scream. We're entering the age of a permanent Democratic majority. A permanent Democratic majority. Two years later, after the '94 Republican Revolution, many of these same pundits were talking about and now a permanent Republican majority. Even President Bill Clinton, who, as we all know, always told the truth, famously said in his State of the Union speech, the era of big government is over. And to a degree, it was over until Barack Obama was elected 12 years later. You see, political fortunes in Western style democracy change very quickly. Have you noticed that? If you've lived a while, you may have noticed that. I was listening to Jonah Goldberg speak in the Bay Area a few years, a couple years ago, and he said something that I thought was quite interesting. He says, No cause is ever truly lost because no cause is ever won. Any cause is only a generation away from victory or defeat or defeat. Now, we as Christians know that as we move toward the end, God's kingdom will advance, but we're talking about in the the sort of interim period. Now, if you grasp these historical facts, you'll never become too enthusiastic about political or cultural victories, nor never too despondent over defeats. Our cultural fortunes are in the hands of a sovereign God who promises victory, not immediately, but gradually as we move toward the sun's coming in time and history. And that leads to my final point before we have our discussion. Optimism. Now, uh, we all know of famous last-days Christians who employ what we'd like to term newspaper exegesis. Today, I guess we'd call it internet exegesis. They check for the world's latest dictator and try to identify him with the Antichrist. You know what I'm talking about? Seventy years ago, it was Mussolini. It really was. It was Mussolini. Um <clears throat> Reminded of the story of the man who predicted that Mussolini was the Antichrist, and of course the news came that his own countrymen had strung him up and killed him, and he ran out of his bedroom and his study and his old typewriter, and he says, they can't do that, they've killed my Antichrist, they've killed my Antichrist, they can't do that. Fifteen years ago it was Saddam Hussein, maybe today it's Vladimir Putin, right, the Antichrist. They may even find ISIS prophesied in the Bible. Now, it's easy to look down on such sort of misguided interpretations, but it's also easy ourselves to fall into the same sort of interpretive hysterics as cultural observers, though from a different standpoint. We recognize a pervasive cultural depravity, for example. The nation's gradually legalizing same-sex marriage. Pornography is becoming uh, ubiquitous. Barack Obama and the Democrats have commandeered the nation's health care, for now at least. Political correctness is running rampant on campuses. And we're tempted to become despondent. I agree that if we look only at these cultural events and extrapolate from them, our outlook would indeed be dismal. Now, this uh, is a big problem with unbelieving political conservatives who always seem to be wringing their hands. And that's why it's not sufficient to be a conservative. You must be a Christian conservative. But as Christians, of course, we don't look principally at trends or trajectories. We live by faith, not by sight. The universe is the glorious theater in which God accomplishes his good purposes for the earth. And thus, despite Satan's attack, despite political and cultural hostility, despite cowardice and anti-intellectualism and superficiality in the church, despite all that, God's purposes will not eventually be frustrated. We will win. Uh, No, 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 better. He will win. He will win. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, God isn't the author of sin. Neither does sin take God by surprise or frustrate his purposes. Rather, and I like the language of an author I was reading recently, he says God takes sin and turns it back on itself. God bends sin to his own glorious purposes. Now, all Christians believe this. They just don't know they believe it. They don't think about it. There was no greater sin in human history than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. No greater sin in human history than the murder of our Lord. And yet God bent that sin. He turned it back on itself to bring redemption to humanity. Think of it this way. Just as Satan perverts the good for evil purposes, so God bends evil for his own good purposes. It's for this reason that God warns his people never to be anxious, never to be frantic, but to rest in him and in his almighty power. We need never be despondent over what our eyes observe around us. I was thinking, as I conclude here, of uh, 2 Kings 6 and the account of the king of Syria who sent an army to capture Elijah, God's prophet. Can you believe that? If we had prophets today like that, sent out an entire army to get one man, God's man. They came at night and they found Elijah, his servant. And then we read in 2 Kings 6. When the servant of the man of God, the servant with Elijah, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? In other words, he was really scared. Elijah said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's a remarkable story. Read the whole thing one day when you get a chance. That's the prayer we should pray when we feel overwhelmed by cultural evil. O Lord, please open our eyes that we may see. In conclusion, then, we have reasons to be culturally pessimistic. We should, however, recognizing the fluctuations of history, be realistic. We have seen this movie many times before, and we always know how it ends. Would you like to know how it ends? God wins. Most importantly, recognizing the promises of God's revelation, we should be optimistic. There is no contradiction in embracing these attitudes simultaneously. We can be all at once, pessimistic, realistic, and optimistic. We can't lose. We cannot lose. That's the attitude of the wise cultural warrior. And with that, it's now time for you to talk, and I will shut up. Anybody have any questions, comments, in any particular order, raise your hand, and we will get a discussion. Okay, we've got one. CJ's going to go first. Anybody after that? Anybody else want to get in the two, three? Any more? You can talk later. But okay, CJ, you go first. Well, thank you, sir. I thought that was great. Been a while since I've been to one of these. So it's cool. refreshing. Cool. Uh, just a quick question for you. Do you have another modern example of God turning sin on itself? Well, I think that happens. Good question. I think that that happens every day. Uh, oh, you say modern example. Um,